I no sooner arrived in New York when I was just working steadily and almost that first year I was here, 1944, when I first came to New York, I got the shadow. I was called down to audition for something. I was doing another broadcast and they were losing the studio at like two o'clock and I was called in and I didn't get off the air until quarter of two. So I said, well, I'm not sure that I can make it. I said, I'll try my best. So I got there about three minutes to two and I thought, mm -hmm. you know, so they said, well, we're losing the studio at two o'clock. They handed me this thing and said, just read this. It's the opening and closing of this thing and that was mm -hmm. it. And I looked at it and it was the opening and closing of The Shadow. <laughs> And you didn't know it was for the show? No, I didn't know uh -huh. what it was for. <laughs> so I just read it as I'd always remembered hearing it, uh -huh. you know, because we used to follow the shadow as first nighter. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so I always heard the closing signature. So that was that. I, you know, I read it and I forgot about it. We constantly doing auditions and some we get and some we don't. And about uh, oh, a week or so later, I got the call and said, oh, you're it. And so I did it from then until it went off the air. I did the shadow, I guess, longer than anyone. From, uh, for several from 44 until the, the until end? It went off when the was air. the end? Middle 50s, something. Middle 50s, about uh -huh. 56 or 57, somewhere uh -huh. around, I think, somewhere around. And there there were brand new shows being oh, presented yeah. every Sunday yeah, yeah. Sunday afternoon without right. the shadow. Five o'clock shadow, I was talking. <laughs> <laughs> Halloween 1948 was windy in New York, while John Dewey headlined the New York Daily News. In Brooklyn, James Edward Heller penned a Daily Eagle editorial claiming the current generation of kids celebrated Halloween too feebly. Makers of Post Corn Toasties welcomes you to the House of Mystery. This is Roger Elliot, otherwise known as the Mystery Man. Inviting you to join us for another storytelling session here at the House of Mystery. By October 31st, 1948, Hello, the Mutual Broadcasting Systems flagship WOR in New York was approaching its 27th anniversary. It was argued that no station matched its signal coverage. WOR Mutual was known for its cop shows, soap operas, and on Sundays, its mysteries. I'm sorry, Johnny, I don't think I understand that. At 4 p.m. Eastern Time, House of Mystery signed on for General Foods. John Griggs was Roger Elliott, ghost chaser and scientist of the supernatural. The show was directed by Olga Drus, who guided the program along a fine line. Because House of Mystery was geared for children, it couldn't be overly gruesome or vulgar. I give up. Right out of the fresh protective box. Uh, just like uh, Post Corn Toasties was uh, nuts. 
or candy or popcorn. Postcorn toasties are delicious that way. That's a wonderful yeah. idea. No fuss, no bother, but still you can take postcorn toasties with you on your picnic, automobile trips, or swimming parties. Just tuck a fresh protector box of postcorn toasties in with your luggage and eat those tender, crisp, golden brown flakes as you would nuts or candy right out of the box. And you can be sure of one thing. The special fresh protector box will keep postcorn toasties fresh and crisp until the last golden flake has been eaten. Thank you, Ruth and Johnny, for a wonderful suggestion. Oh, that's okay. And now I see it's time for today's mystery. The story I call A Gift from the Dead. It began in a hotel in San Francisco, where I'd taken a room to wait for Paul Sheldon, an old friend of mine who was flying in from Kansas City to join me. Some weeks ago, Paul and I had been invited by his sister, Jane Kovarak, to spend a few days at her home in the beautiful but rugged Big Sur country, 150 miles south of San Francisco. We'd accepted Jane's invitation with enthusiasm as evidence of her complete recovery from the shock of her husband's death. For my thoughts were miles away when the bellboy knocked on my door and handed me a letter. It was from Jane. I opened it and began to read. But I was hardly beyond the first line when a vague feeling of uneasiness crept over me. The note was brief and to the point. She was canceling her invitation. As the day wore on, I reread the letter several times each time feeling more uneasy. And by afternoon, I found myself pacing restlessly back and forth, impatient for Paul's arrival. I was about to leave for the airport to meet his plane when a long-distance telephone call stopped me. It was a woman, her voice tight with panic. Mr. Roger Elliott? Yes? Who's this? My name is Craig, Miss Alma Craig. Yes? I'm Mrs. Kovrak's housekeeper. I see. Mr. Elliott, you must come at once. Mrs. Kovrak needs help. But I just got a letter from her canceling the invitation. I know. That's why I'm calling. We're in danger, Mr. Elliott. You must come. What kind of danger, Miss Craig? The master of this house has returned. We've heard him. He's here. Basil Kovrak has come back. Mr. Elliott, he's come back from the dead. With a sharp click of the receiver, Miss Craig's voice was gone. At 4.30, True Detective Mysteries signed on. Oh, Henry, public energy number one. Yes, it's time for O. Henry, America's famous candy bar, to present True Detective Mysteries. And now, O. Henry, America's famous candy bar, brings you John Shuttleworth. This is John Shuttleworth, editor-in-chief of True Detective magazine, bringing you the case history of an actual crime. I'm sure that you've often heard the expression, crime classic. To be honest with you, I don't know exactly what that phrase means. But if you take it to mean that there are a few criminal cases so outstanding as to become famous, then I can safely say that today's case, which I call The Dream of Richard Lauber, is a crime classic. It started on Gertrude Schmidt's day off, which she spent on one of the numerous beaches outside New York that yacht out there is a pretty sight, isn't it? Yes, it is. 
But you, you're even prettier. That's a pretty compliment, but I shouldn't listen. I don't know you. If that's all that troubles you, I can take care of it immediately. My name is Joseph Strasser, and I'm an architect. <laughs> oh, not so fast, not so fast. You're right. We should sit down somewhere where it's cool and comfortable and get to know each other. Oh, I don't think that... Oh, come along. It's such a beautiful day. There's no harm in a cold drink. My name is Gertrude Schmidt. And I will have a cold drink with you. Good. We should be friends. We both come from Germany. You too? Oh, yes. I came here when I was very young, but I've always wanted to go back. My father didn't want me to come here. He said I should stay home and settle down and get married. But I had other ideas. But you certainly believe in marriage. With the right man? <laughs> what woman doesn't? But you haven't met the right man yet. Not yet, at least. Perhaps you have met the right man today. You always talk this way to girls you've just met? No. Only to you. Because we're going to see a lot of each other. Home at last? It's about time. That's a fine greeting. And look at you. Look at your stockings. Don't I give you enough money to dress decently? I'd rather you made me poor than the husband of a slatter. Hold your tongue. You have your nerve coming here at 10 o'clock, leaving me to take care of the children and keep your supper warm for you since 6. How do I know where you've been? I was a fool to marry you. So you were a fool to marry me. I'll beat you until... What's stopping you? Ah, give me my supper and stay out of my sight. This is John Shuttleworth again. You wouldn't have recognized Richard Lawler as he wined and dined Gertrude Schmidt in New York's swankiest restaurants and took long walks with her in the country. He was again using the name of Joseph Strasser. He was a carefree bachelor, charming, talking of marriage. In a moment, we shall hear the path down which Lauber was to plunge with terrifying speed. But first, it's time for O. Henry. Though based on items from True Detective magazine, the series was sponsored by O. Henry Candy Bars. Many of the stories unfolded from the criminal's viewpoint. The show is much like gangbusters in allowing the audience to witness the fatal mistakes that led to the culprit's capture. Borrowing yet another page from gangbusters, the magazine offered rewards of $500 for information leading to the arrest of real criminals. Clues were given after each broadcast. These were highly descriptive, focusing on scars and deformities, and the show resulted in many arrests. else would come in. Did you do the shadow from the East Coast? Yes, I was uh, from New York. It was always from New York. Yes. Never out here. No. Did you have to take a trip to the Orient to learn how to cloud men's minds? No, I managed to do that without, <laughs> ha without having to go to the Orient. The shadow never really gave the opening of the show, but there was that shadowy voice that... Yes, well, I did the opening and closing signal, the who knows mm -hmm. what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Do you think that we could get a 50-cent version of that? Uh, oh, yeah. It won't sound the same because I worked on a special microphone uh -huh. which gave it a, a filtered effect, but I can do it, I okay. mean, as far as that's concerned. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? 
The shadow knows. <laughs> At 5 p.m., Mutual's most famous program, The Shadow, signed on. The show was in its 11th season on the air in 1948. Legendary announcer Andre Baruch handled MC duties, while Grace Matthews played Margot Lane. Brett Morrison was Lamont Cranston. Halloween's episode was called Murder by a Corpse. When you were playing uh, Lamont Cranston, The Shadow, who was your lovely friend and companion, Margot Lane? Well, I had four. Marjorie Anderson was the first, and then Gertrude Warner. Gertrude was actually the last one. Grace Matthews and Leslie Woods. I think Gertrude did it longer than anyone else. And then Agnes Moorhead did it with uh, Orson Welles. Mm -hmm. When I first did it, you know, we were live. Uh -huh. We used to work from the Long Acre Theater in uh, New York. Of course, I don't believe radio shows should be watched, but the audiences seem to enjoy it. But it's such a small percentage of yeah. the listeners that it uh, doesn't, I guess, destroy the illusion. The forces of law and order is in reality Lamont Cranston, wealthy young man about town. Years ago in the Orient, Cranston learned a strange and mysterious secret, the hypnotic power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Cranston's friend and companion, the lovely Margot Lane, is the only person who knows to whom the voice of the invisible shadow belongs. Today's drama, Murder by a Corpse. The doctor and the nurse walk through the white silence of the sanitarium corridor and stop before the door of room seven. The doctor peers through the small glass panel in the face of the door and nods to the attendant inside. The door is unlocked, opened, and the doctor and nurse walk in. Morning, Dr. Manchek. Good morning, Rossi. How's our new patient, Mr. Holden? We had a tough time with him in the ambulance last night. Dr. Adams had to give him a shot. Dr. Adams' report on the case is on your desk, Dr. Manchin. Yes, I saw it, Miss Wagner. Mr. Holden, I'm Dr. Carl Manchek, chief of this institution. You're lying. You hear me? You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. I'm not crazy. This is a trick. You're a spy like the rest of them. Same line all the time, Doc. You can't fool me with that doctor act. I know who you are. You're one of the spies, too. I know. Spies. Same talk all the time. Typical manic depressive fear fantasy. Miss Wagner? Yes, sir. Tell Dr. Adams I wish to see him in my office. I'll be there when I finish examining the new patient. Yes, Dr. Manchin. <laughs> You're lying. You're in with the rest of them. 
I'm not crazy. This is a trick. <laughs> How was I, Doc? You were quite excellent, Eddie. I know who you are. You're all spies, all of you. How'd you like it, Sid? Terrific, Eddie. You were terrific. Sure. Just say, ask the Doc here. He'll tell you the Doc's an expert. He'll tell anybody that Eddie Holden blew his top. Severe paranoia, Eddie. See, Sid? Paranoia. Paranoia. That's what the expert says. So severe, they got to watch me night and day. And who do they happen to pick out to do the watching? <laughs> Nobody but Sid Rossi. Neat setup, huh? <laughs> Doc, you worked it out like a masterpiece. Naturally, I specialize in uh, cases like yours, Eddie. Yeah, it was a lucky day I made the contact with Sid. I won't forget you two for this. Oh, you can be sure we'll keep your memory quite refreshed. Yeah. A $50,000 bundle is something to remember, ain't it, Doc? Don't worry, you'll get your share. But Doc, did the uh, telegram work? Perfectly. Fenty left on the 815 train. Uh -huh. What about his wife, Claire? She remained, just as you said she would. Eddie, hmm? are you sure Claire knows where the bonds are ditched? Of course she knows. Well, everything's set for tonight. Yeah, all set. I let you out the fire door at the end of the hall. You just got to cut across the lawn to the rear gate. I'll see that the gate is left unlocked. I cover up for you here so as no one gets wise while you're out. The lead pipe's engineering. But remember... You must return before daylight. Otherwise... I'll be back. Now, uh, we're gone, huh? Here you are. Eddie, you didn't tell us how you're going to handle that Bentley dance. That all depends, Sid. It all depends on how much Claire Bentley is afraid of a ghost. Ted and Earl will be awfully worried about us. The month. we're over an hour late now. Margo, I don't know what made me turn onto this road. From now on, no more shortcuts. Don't look now, but your sense of direction is slipping. Margo, you're a front seat driver. Oh. Well, it's a new rainstorm that blows no road sign. Lamont, what are you... That fork in the road ahead, there's a signpost. Oh, thank heavens. Mason City, ten miles. That's the right. Mount Cleardale Cemetery, two miles. The left... <laughs> Margo, I leave the choice to you. <laughs> to the right, of course. When we get to Mason City, we'll call Nora. Come on, that car coming down the road. Head it straight for us. I'd better pull over. Margo, look out! Margo, are you all right? Yes. You sure? I'm just shaking. Come on, we'll see how they're on the other car. I was lucky I was able to pull away in time, otherwise our destination would have automatically been changed from Mason City to Mount Cleardale Cemetery. Take Manhattan, the Bronx, and Staten Island, too. Beginning in the late 1940s, the WOR listener profile shifted as New York's population changed. Both the GI Bill and City Parks Commissioner Robert Moses' urban renewal plan sent middle-class families to the suburbs. Racial discrimination came to the forefront a much higher percentage of white Americans were having their applications accepted. It's very fancy on old As night descended on New York on October 31st, temperatures dropped into the upper 40s and an eerie fog rolled in. Police were on alert for mischief as children went trick-or-treating. 
the Halloween tradition was still seen by many as an act of begging and vandalism. In response, members of the Madison Square Boys Club paraded through the Lower East Side carrying a banner that read, American boys don't beg. The following period has been purchased by the New York State Wallace for President Committee for presenting Henry A. Wallace, who will speak from Dallas, Texas, in behalf of his candidacy for the presidency. Politically, progressive Henry Wallace was making a dent in Harry Truman's campaign. On election day, Truman will still carry the city, collecting 1.6 million votes to Dewey's 1.1 million. But Henry Wallace will receive over 420,000 votes. It's this voter split that will allow Thomas Dewey to narrowly win his home state by 60,000 votes, giving the Republicans 47 important electorates. The great big city is a wondrous toy. At home, the mutual broadcasting system's prime time featured news and music. But at 7 p.m., literature's most famous detective took to the air from WOR. This is WOR New York. Seven o'clock by Longines, the world's most honored watch. Product of the Longines Whitnor Watch Company. From New York City, the makers of Clipper Craft Clothes for Men and more than 1,200 leading retail stores from coast to coast present that immortal character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the world's most famous detective, Sherlock Holmes, starring John Stanley. <laughs> this week's story, The Adventure of the Uddington Witch. Yes, Watson. You say you saw a shadow dart into this forest after the murder? I did, Watson. And it was an extraordinary shadow indeed. What do you mean? I saw what was apparently a witch, Watson. A witch? Precisely. The Black Witch of Uddington. The local townsfolk say she still prowls this forest. Good evening, Dr. Watson. Good evening, Mr. Harris. And what adventure are you working on tonight, Doctor? One of the strangest and weirdest in my memoir. Holmes and I always referred to it as the adventure of the Uddington Witch. The adventure of the Uddington Witch. Sounds like something to raise the goosebumps, Doctor. Indeed it is, Mr. Harris. But first, Mr. Harris, I know you have something to say about Clippercraft clothes. Indeed I do. The day you wear your new Clippercraft suit for the first time, your friends are likely to wonder whether you came into an unexpected fortune. Sherlock Holmes peaked on radio between 1939 and 1946 with Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce playing Holmes and Watson. They made 14 films during this time, and their rating climbed to 14.1 in 1942 on NBC. The next year, the entire cast moved to the mutual broadcasting system. They remained for three seasons until Holmes left for ABC. Basil Rathbone stayed with Mutual to star in a new series called Scotland Yard. Nigel Bruce stayed on as Watson while Tom Conway became Holmes. When the Semler Company discontinued sponsorship in the spring of 1947, ABC canceled the show. That summer, 
Clipper Craft Clothing signed on to pay the bills. And see for yourself how true it is. The program moved back to Mutual, with John Stanley as Holmes and Alfred Shirley as Watson. By Halloween 1948, it was airing Sundays at 7 p.m. And now, Dr. Watson, what's this adventure of the Uddington Witch all about? Well, Mr. Harris, it took place in 99, as I recall. Holmes and I were taking our ease at Baker Street one evening when we received an urgent and certainly a bizarre telegram. It came from Uddington, a town in the Shire of Lanark, in the lowlands of Scotland. And it was from a Lord Dunbar, master of Heathercliff Manor. It begged Holmes to come to the manor with all possible speed, stating that a witch had spirited away his mother in the dark of night. A witch? Exactly, Mr. Hess. A witch. Naturally, Holmes's curiosity was immediately aroused, and we resolved to take the noon train the following day. But little did we know, as we read the telegram, that tragic events were already in the making at Uddington on that very same evening. It began with Lord Dunbar in his study. Who's there? Who's there? Bruce? Hester? Why in blazes don't you answer? Didn't I lock my door? Someone has to disturb me. Well, what do you... <gasps> you! Witch of Uddington. I come to bring me the death on the witch's Sabbath. No! No! Yes, I was in bed when it came. Positively ghastly, too. Seemed to come from Uncle Andrew's study. Oh, yes, Bruce. Please hurry. Something's wrong. Terribly wrong. Come on, Aunt Hutcher. Let's have a look. Here's the study. Uncle Andrew. Uncle Andrew. Oh, Bruce, there's no answer. Then we'd better look in. The door's open. Right. Good Lord. The witch's revenge. Andrew. Andrew! Oh! Ah, oh, home. I was wondering when you were coming back to the compartment. Our train is due in Eddington very shortly. Unfortunately, my dear Watson, we're too late to help Lord Dunbar. Too late? What do you mean? I've just seen a copy of a Newcastle newspaper brought aboard at the last station. Lord Dunbar was murdered earlier this morning. What? Foully murdered, Watson. Found dead in his study with a steel spike driven through his heart. A spike? Good Lord. Does this method of murder suggest anything to you, Watson? Why, why no, Holmes. I can't say it does. And you're not up on your lord of demons and witches, my dear fellow. It so happens that the witches, as recently as 200 years ago, were believed to have tortured and stabbed their victims with pins, needles, and sometimes small spikes. Good heavens. It may also interest you to know, Watson, that the history of Lord Dunbar's antecedents gives this macabre affair a rather grim and yet fascinating twist. What do you mean? An ancestor of Lord Dunbar's in the late 17th century was one of Whitstam's most mortal enemies. As Chief Justice of the highest court here in the Scottish Lowlands, he hanged many a witch at Gallow Lee 
four, tied them to a stake on the sands until the tide came up to end their misery. Oh, Holmes, you're not suggesting that this is some kind of witch's revenge? I'm suggesting nothing, Watson, until I have a look at Heathercliff Manor and its remaining inhabitants. As radio audiences changed, Holmes and Watson couldn't keep up. Mutual canceled the series in the spring. ABC revived it for one final season before the last American version of Sherlock Holmes series departed from the air. <laughs> 